Hello to you and welcome to you. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper, and I'm your host, David Cooper. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, the show where no one's listening, the show where no one cares, the show where every episode's the last episode. I'm back from the long weekend. Well, maybe not the long weekend, but my long weekend. I'm ready to jump into science, science, science with Dan Riskin, who's an an evolutionary bio... who's an evolutionary biologist and a science educator. He comes on every now and again. He's also back from vacation. I'm looking forward to catching up with him, getting silly, and maybe learning something. It's like more I'm upset with me because when I do things like this, I'm like communicating to others that I don't take this seriously. And I know I act when I'm performing, when I'm bantering, like I don't give a shit, loosey-goosey, cracking jokes, making fun. But I take this stuff very seriously and I hate being late because it's like I've let myself down. Okay, well, that's between you and yourself, but leave me out of it. I'm, I have no fish to fry on this one. I love that, leave me out of it. You know when people are like having issues and they're like, uh, a long time ago I was sitting down with this woman. I was studying with her at computer science like at the University of Toronto. She had just moved from Iran. She had never met a Jewish person before. And they don't have the least anti-Semitic uh, education system in Iran. From my knowledge, I'm sure, I'm not saying all Iranians are anti-Semites. I don't think that at all. But she said something that rubbed me the wrong way. I got a little upset. She couldn't understand why I got upset. Fifteen years later, she writes me a novel about her journey, huh. how she had problematic views, and she's so sorry. And she just like she just like barfed all these emotions on me. And I, I mean, I couldn't help but think, leave me out of it, you know? Yeah. I, I, well, or I guess the other thing you could do is say, my work is done. Like. In that moment, you wanted to fix it, and it, you didn't know it was going to take 15 years, but you did. Yeah. Did you appreciate hearing from her? I mean, you must have – I can hear you saying, like, I don't need all the intricacies, and I, I'm just still kind of mad about the initial thing. But, I mean, overall, you got to feel pretty good that she followed up with you, don't you think? Or no? Yeah, but it was like she was looping me in on a 15-year journey of ah. how she – because she's gay now, so she's like, if I if I had the views that I had of my community back when I was living What did in you a, say to her? I, I, <laughs> I you made her gay? No. As a result of <laughs> – not only did she like Jewish people, she also likes women. Like, you must have really had a like, – I don't know what your little combo of statements was, but nicely done. Well, I, I did date someone who was now gay, so uh, that's more of like a – you know. You've done your work. But there there was a guy between me and, and, and gay, so I feel like maybe it was his. Was friend. there a guy between you and her? Because that might mean that you're gay. <laughs> I, I am an openly gay heterosexual. You didn't know that about me? I No, I didn't. I, didn't. I love musicals. Like, I love musicals. Really? Yeah. I listened to all of Town on the plane from California last night. Hmm. Do you like musicals? Uh, I do. I do like musicals. I do. Okay. I like good musicals. I do like a good musical. I, I'll say, yeah. Will you put on like a musical album when you're listening at home kind of thing? No. I mean, my 
brother and his daughters are kind of obsessed with Hamilton. So they're constantly wrapping that. Like we just went camping with them and they were like busting that out of the, uh, we didn't have a campfire, but if they're the, the metaphorical campfire, they were busting that out. But I, I was in West side story when I was in high school Ooh. and I went and saw Sweeney Todd on Broadway. I saw Hamilton on Broadway once. And when that did was you, like, like recently you saw it on Broadway. Which one? The one Hamilton? with Josh. Uh, no, uh, Josh. What the Sweeney Todd with Josh? What's his name? Groban. Josh Groban. I did not see Josh Groban. It was a really good performance where there were four actors performing, and all four of them played their played the instrument. So they were the orchestra, Weird. which was really yeah. And they were singing while they were playing. Like there was a cellist. I don't remember the details. I've seen videos of this. This was at the Lincoln Center, I think. Uh, yeah, that sounds right. Yep. Uh, it was very impressive. Yeah. It was very impressive. And Sweeney Todd, it was a fun little story, too. I didn't know the story. Like, that's one thing I try not to know the story before I go see it because I want to, you know, like, I haven't, I didn't listen to Hamilton before I went and saw Hamilton. And it just, blew, my wife and I, we blew both of us away. It was like so good. There is such a big reveal in the end that it's like one of those few things where because it's always running, people know about the big reveal. But if you go in blind, uh, and yep. I'm just going to say it because it's so easily spoiled. And plus the movie sure. with what's his name? Johnny Depp came out years ago. The like beggar woman who he kills in the end was his wife that he was angry about losing the whole musical. And that reveal is like, I don't know. I was watching people in the audience. There's a lot of kids in the audience when the reveal happened. And a few people had their jaws dropped. And that made me so happy. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's the, a good art is good art, right? I yep. mean, I don't like I, I say that, but then opera, I just can't find a way in. Like, I have tried so many times. I'm like, how about this opera? How about that opera? And like, I, other than Bugs Bunny, I just got nothing for it. I am too much like Dr. Fraser Crane. I'm listening. I love opera. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> yeah, I was listening to the tales of Hoffman by Offenbach or Offenbach uh, on the flight back. You could say whatever you want. I won't know it. Okay. Well, that's a silly opera. My mom loves opera and she's been trying to win me over to it, but I'm just not there. Dan, I'm sorry I was late to the taping. Oh, no problem. No problem. I, I mean, it, like I'm at my office. I just did other things and we just, you know, it's, I'm glad that I could move the thing a little bit later. It's, it's all good. You're busy. You're successful. You're better than me. You're more popular than me. It's like one thing if, I don't know, you had an interview with someone Who's like a famous... Oh, Chris Hadfield. I know you love Chris Hadfield. Sure. That's you being late to Chris Hadfield, basically, is what I did. Oh, please. No, I... Well, listen. Uh, you are very hard on yourself and you don't need to be. It's all good. We're friends and and then we're colleagues. And, it, you know, sometimes people make mistakes. Like, I, I mean, like my percentage for how many times I'm late for things is very low. But I am late for things sometimes. Like, I, I do make mistakes sometimes. Like, I miss appointments. I miss I miss things. I, or, I, or I'm late for them. And uh, I just feel like I'd be a hypocrite if I, you know. Like, if you're late, like, four times in a row, then shame on one of us. I don't know. I don't think I've ever been late for a taping with you. Have I? No, no. God, no. no. And you'll never be again after this yeah. <laughs> ludicrous moment. And I've worked with you for, what, a year and a half over here? I think probably almost two years. Two years ago, like, uh, July is when I first filled in for Jim Richards. And probably I had you on that week. Yeah, that sounds like, yeah, that's, yes. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, so two years, you're doing pretty well. Your, your percentage is still pretty high. Good. Uh, you've got some great stories you've been talking about this week, last week, who knows. One that I love is that lepers, leprosy is the new fad in Florida. Uh, people are excited about it. Yeah, Florida man. Is that a real thing? I thought we defeated leprosy. I thought with all the colonies and everything, it was a thing of the past. The colonies aren't what did them in. It's, it, antibiotics turn out to be the thing that did them in. So leprosy is caused by a bacterium and it's treatable, but it's just this disease that um, people get and they often are in places where there isn't a lot of medical care or they're not seeing doctors. And it's just like, it starts 
first of all, you don't get it like really quick. You have to have prolonged exposure to people with leprosy. And then it starts off as like a rash on your hands and then some sores. And it, it, it hurts the skin, but it also hurts the nervous system. And so apparently like, I don't know, the, the sort of characteristic leprosy thing from like olden days is that the fingers missing and stuff like that. And it turns out that a lot of that is because of nerve damage. You don't notice when you injure yourself. And so you'll like burn your finger really badly or break your finger and you don't notice it's happened because there's so much damage to the nerves. That's how the disease progresses. But it takes years to get to that point. And if at any point in modern times you meet a doctor and that doctor gives you antibiotics, you got to take antibiotics for a couple of years, but it does go away. It is treatable. So um, it's pretty rare. And in the States, hardly ever shows up, like fewer than 200 cases a year. And those are almost always from people that went and spent prolonged periods in other parts of the world where it's endemic, or they spent time with somebody who came back with it and got it that way. How is it transmitted? So they think it's respiratory droplets, but you need a lot of them. So you you can't get it sitting next to someone on the bus. You can't get it from having dinner with someone. You can't even get it having sex with someone. And it's also not passed from mothers to babies during childbirth. It's really hard to get. Wow. So you have to like be in a household with someone for like a few months in the same room, hanging out, coughing. Exactly. And that's the CDC makes a big point of this because they don't want all of a sudden everybody freaking out that they can't go to Florida because heaven forbid we hurt Florida's tourism industry when it's doing so much to hurt its tourism industry in other ways. Um, so you are a Ron DeSantis fan is what I'm, I'm going to. <laughs> Quote you on this, Dan Riskin, Ron DeSantis fan. Uh, oh, just, uh, we have it. You said it. You love it. You love Floridian politics. I love Florida, and I know some nice people in Florida, and I like going there. We typically go there for Christmas, but they just keep doing things politically that make me feel very, very upset. I'm with you. Nonetheless, um, there's a uh, a 54-year-old Florida man, and he goes to the doctor, and he says, I've got this rash, and it's been on my feet and my hands for a while, and now it's on my trunk, and they're like, oh, let's test you for this and that and the other thing. Oh, it's leprosy. When did you go traveling to Bangladesh or wherever you might have gotten this from? I've never been, never left the United States. Oh, well, that's weird. Well, who have you been spending time with? Nobody that has leprosy. Okay, well, that's weird. Now, the third way that you can get leprosy, and actually one of the most common ways to get leprosy in the United States is to come in contact with an armadillo, because apparently <laughs> armadillos, I know, it's so random, but like your urge to run toward an armadillo, just like don't do that. They, they, they're they really against gay marriage in Florida, but they're pro-armadillo marriage, apparently. Shh, apparently, apparently. But people, and what's weird is you don't have to like live with an armadillo for an extended period of time. It's just people that like hunt armadillos or eat armadillos often get the bacteria on them. I guess maybe they just carry a ton of this bacteria and, and way more than gets dropped by somebody who has leprosy. Are they like the original vector or this just happens to be a random vector that over time random. they can get it? Okay. Yeah. 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 It's it's so like other cases in other parts of the world aren't necessarily linked with armadillos, but in, in, in the United States, it's armadillos are like the first sort of like thing you check. So this guy had not come in contact with an armadillo. So they, he's a contractor. He works outside a lot. And there have been more and more cases in, in, uh, in Florida. And so the doctors who published this report in the Journal of Emerging Infectious Diseases argue that he probably just got it from the soil and that leprosy probably is endemic in Florida now because there have been enough cases and it's the right kind of climate. Um, maybe we just have to keep a wider eye open for this. So they're not saying everybody should avoid Florida. DeSantis aside, they're saying, uh, we just, if you're a doctor in Florida or if your patient has been to Florida, check for leprosy. That might be what's causing the symptoms you're looking at. How do we know conclusively, how do we rule out that this man actually did have contact with armadillos, but the contact was not family friendly. So he lied to the authorities because he didn't want to get busted for his armadillo love, as it were. 
Yeah, you know what? The the hypothesis that he's secretly humping armadillos uh, is possible. It's a valid one. I mean, hey, come on. They're hedging their bets. They're saying like, with the data we have, we say that it's probably endemic. But it might be that this guy just was part of a big, huge armadillo humping ring that uh, just got busted wide open in central Florida. But nonetheless, uh, they don't they don't have data to support either. So they say, what, what's the most likely hypothesis? And it is endemic in the soil in places like India. You can get it there uh, just from working the soil, the, the spores of the, or I guess, are they bacterial? They're not really spores, but the bacteria can exist in the soil and you can pick it up that way. So um, they're, they're saying that's probably likely in Florida. And so you would expect that there will be follow-up studies where people do like surveys of the soil in different places. Maybe go look at the places where this guy was working as a contractor and see whether you can find traces of it in the soil, stuff like that. Is there antibiotic resistant leprosy or is that reserved for other other ailments? Like leprosy responds well to antibiotics. Leprosy responds slowly but well to antibiotics. So they put this guy on three different antibiotics and as far as they're concerned, he's on his way to health. And and the CDC website says that, you know, bacteria, it's a bacteria that gets treated by antibiotics and it's no big deal. The, the other interesting thing is that according to the CDC, 95% of people are immune to leprosy. They can't get it. And it's just 5% that do get it, which is kind of this neat question about, well, where does that come from? Is that because you've been exposed to something similar or is it just that, you know, like how does that, what makes you leprosy proof and, and can that change over time? Lots of questions remaining to be answered. Uh, well, it might be an evolutionary thing. I mean, leprosy has been around for such a long time that, you know, we've evolved to, you know, be immune to it and maybe it's evolved to, uh, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's possible that it's part of a evolutionary arms race with humans, totally. Because, I mean, it is historically such a big thing, like leper colonies and all that stuff. In fact, uh, last, not this summer, but the summer before, our family went to Greece and we went to Crete and uh, we visited this little island. We, we took like a glass bottom boat tour and we went out to this uh, near the, the city of Hanya, which is spelled C-H-A-N-I-A. And there was a, an island off the shore that for a long time was a leper colony. And it's really cool to 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 see this place and to like imagine living on this tiny tiny island where you can see the the city right across the water from you and to imagine what that would have been like for the people that live there it's uh it's a weird way but i mean we understood enough about disease in those days to know that we should move the people with disease away from the people that don't have the disease um but i don't know that that was maybe ethically the best way to do it is to put them on an island to fend for themselves from a disease spreading perspective it's the right thing to do but i'm sure they treated the people on the island like crap yeah, yeah. They put them on an island, for one thing. Yeah. And uh, again, this is a joke I've been thinking this whole time. I never had a chance okay. to work it in. This is such buildup, and it is the worst joke. But if leprosy doesn't respond well to antibiotics, why don't we try Uncle Biotics? Ah, yes. Okay, good. That yes. was a long silence after I said it. No, that's too. good. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's, a, that that's is a joke. My dad last week, he was in New York and he said something. I don't know. He's a baby boomer. He just said something that was not with the times. Okay. Okay. He called something woke that wasn't even what conservatives would call woke. And he was going on about it. And rather than start with my father, I just said, that's an opinion. I feel like saying that's funny is the uh, the laughing equivalent of, of that. Right. You know, I'm validating yeah. you, but it's not. I'm not going to laugh. Yeah. I, but really what I'm looking for is a way to end that part of the conversation and move on to the next part. Okay. Let's talk, well, actually, let's talk about where you were. You've been away for a few weeks. What, do you, what have you been up yeah. to? Yeah. Well, I was in uh, BC. I would took the family out to BC and we spent some time with the cousins and we spent some time with other cousins and we uh, camped a little bit. And the highlight of the trip... The highlight was where uh, my eight-year-old son and I went for a walk 
on the beach. Have you ever been to Long Beach on the West Coast? Have you ever been to BC? No, never. I, I lived on the West Coast for 10 years. I never visited the Canadian West Coast. I'm a bad Canadian. I've never been to BC. Well, but maybe you're better for the environment because you didn't have that carbon footprint of going all the way there, which racks our whole family with guilt because the five of us flew out there. But we went to Tofino, which is a city, well, it's a town on the like on the edge of the ocean on the far side of Vancouver Island. So like it's basically as far as you can go before you are in the water. And uh, it is famous for its surfing. And it's also uh, got these huge beaches. And the beaches are like really, really like, I don't know what, deep, I guess. There's so much sand. Cool. Not deep water, but like deep, like wide. They're thick. long and they're width. Long. They have a lot of width. They're, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the distance, if you walk from the water to the back, to the edge of the sand is long, Got whatever it. that means. Got it. Um, and especially when the tide's out, it's very gentle slope. So the tide goes way out, but you can have like a huge distance. So my, my, uh, eight year old and I walked down to the together. We left the rest of the family members behind and we went down there and we walked down to the water's edge and we were like, Oh, look at the nice water. And I was looking at some birds and he was looking at shells and then he gets bored and he says, I'm going to go work on my fort. Because the day before, we're at the back of that beach, the, that long distance from the water, you get to a big pile of driftwood that all gets laid down in the winter when they have these huge magical storms. And then past the driftwood piles is the forest. And so he walks all the way back towards the driftwood where he has made this fort that he was working on yesterday. And he wants to continue working on his fort. So he's walking and I'm like looking at shells and all this stuff. And he's looking down at the sand and I'm looking down at the sand. And then I look up at him and he's approaching the driftwood. And on the other side of the driftwood at the forest edge is a black bear. And he's basically just walked right up to this bear wow. and i'm just like oh no so and i'm far and and he's close to this bear so i called out to him and i said stop walking come to me do not run walk do not run and he goes why <laughs> well you teach your kids to question authority <laughs> yeah i do i do i mean to his credit he had already started walking toward me but he's like why dad how come and I feel like if I'd given him another minute or two, he probably would have figured it out. But I had this real moment of like, I could be like, just come here and I'll tell you when you get here. Or I could say what it is because I didn't want, I, I felt like it was a good idea for him to know the context in case the situation changed dramatically and I had to give him different instructions. So um, he, I, I said, there's a bear walk do not run walk is time slowing down for you at this moment like because <sighs> this is a traumatic moment for a parent you're really worried about your child you know i didn't experience a real change in my perception of time but i definitely was feeling some big time adrenaline like it's like the adrenaline you feel when you're in trouble this is the first time i've ever felt that for one of my kids like it's the first time i've ever been like oh no my kid could be really badly hurt right now and so i really had a lot of adrenaline so anyway i i told him walk don't run and, and it's a bear and it, it, as he's walking he looks over his shoulder and sees this bear and then there's a little spring in his step for that next step and i'm a little worried he's gonna run but then he continues to walk and then once he got like two-thirds of the way to me i was like okay finally he's gonna be okay and or at worst the bear will reach both of us together because i can get to him now before the bear does um but then he walked all the way to me and then the bear kind of stayed where it was and did its thing and then i was like okay let's give this bear the beach we are leaving the beach <laughs> we made a bear we fort you're welcome yeah. bear we made exactly. you a fort and as we walked away we could see that other people like and we were almost alone on this beach but there were other people that were playing in the water that saw what was happening and then they stopped and they were like looking at this bear and it was clear that like people had gotten the message so nobody else was going to stumble on this thing and then 
they, they found a ranger and told the ranger and then the ranger came over and we got to tell our story to the ranger. But the real take home is that my eight-year-old really nailed it. Like he did a perfect job of exactly what you're supposed to do if you get that close to a bear, which is to walk away very calmly. And he did exactly that. So I'm, uh, I'm very relieved that he, uh, he did that. But man, that, yeah, anyway, that's a highlight, right? Like it was scary, lots of adrenaline, but like a great story. And I, I thought of you. Not at the moment, but later, because you're the one who's always saying beta blockers are the way to go because you don't get so nervous. But the reason I remember (laughs) that so well is because of the adrenaline and the effect that has on memory. And the studies show that if you take beta blockers, you won't remember it as well. So I I don't know. Like, don't you worry that when you take beta blockers, you might miss something like a bear chasing your eight-year-old? I only take them before major performances, which I, I, you know, and maybe my memory of my performances would be better if I didn't take them. Does it go through your head at the moment, I'm going to have to fight this bear? You know what? It kind of, you look at the bear and it doesn't look like a animal that, like, I think I'd fight that bear. Like, I, I really was like, I would, if I have to run towards that bear, I totally will. No problem. Well, aren't black bears like the wimps? I mean, they're strong. They'll kill you, but sure. they're the wimps of bears. Sure. So they're not grizzlies, you know? Yeah, they only weigh like 500 pounds and they can only like maul you very badly. But they also, they scare easy. They respond to clapping well. Like they, right. they're not that aggressive towards people unless they're protecting their young. Right. And so, but I'm scared of bears when I'm alone. But when I was with him and I saw that bear and the, I had this thought of like, if he, if he ran towards, or she, I don't know, the they. the sex of the bear, if the bear, it if it ran toward my son, I was going to run toward the two of them. Like there was no, like that was something that I was like, okay, that, that is the plan if it starts running as I go toward my kid. Like there, there was just no question. And then I punch it in the face and I poke out its eyes and I get mauled, <laughs> but hopefully just me. And then hopefully my son has the wherewithal to get out of there. But like that idea that I go towards it, that's not something that occurs when I see a bear. And it did occur to me that time. So that was one fundamental difference. I'm not saying I was a hero. Like I still didn't walk towards the thing. I stopped where I was and waited for my son to come to me. I didn't like cut him off at the pass or anything like that. But I didn't want to be, you know, it was working. And I just let it play out and was patient. And then once my kid got to me, we got out of there. Well, for you, you've written amazing, I don't know, papers. You've participated in great studies. You've been on national television. You've lived a whole life. You have great stories. You used to be a male gigolo, a prostitute. I'm just saying you have mm. this great life. Uh, but for your kid who's eight, like, this is a great story for him. Like, this is a number one fun story that he gets to tell his friends, show off, other than the fact that his dad's a gigolo, which he gets made fun of for. But right. I'm saying, it, what a wonder, I mean, it's not wonderful because it's dangerous, but it, what a wonderful thing to happen to a kid. It is a wonderful thing to have happen to him. And you know what? It's, it's funny because the the two nights before that, they have this, this, uh, this lecture series at the campground. They have a theater at the campground, and every night at 8 o'clock, there's a talk that you can go to and sometimes it's like here's a talk about barnacles or here's a talk about albatross or here's a talk about the forest or whatever and there was a talk about bears wolves and cougars the three big predators that live in that habitat that you need to know how to you know live alongside and basically the the purpose of the talk was to say like these are big predators everybody wants to see them but really it's better if we don't see them very often and it's better if we don't like stop and take pictures of them and get them used to us because we don't want them to hunt us and so it's a message that's kind of kid friendly and it was a little bit of a like sorry everybody i know you really want to see a bear or a cougar but you shouldn't that shouldn't be your goal because it's not good for them and it's a good message and it's it's an important message and it's a tricky one to deliver to a lot of audiences because they just want to see the animals um but my kids all attended that and what was funny is that like the guy giving the talk his name was carl i liked him very much uh he he starts off the talk he's like i'm not here to scare you i'm not here to 
to freak you out. And then he proceeds to tell the scariest stories you could possibly tell kids about these predators. Like he tells this one story about somebody who was camping on a beach and then he woke up and a wolf was right at his face. And then when he screamed, the wolf bit his skull and he needed stitches all over his skull. And it's like, what a great thing to tell children. Yeah, exactly. But he's like, his point is it's because the guy before that was leaving garbage on the beach and the wolves got used to the garbage and they were eating the human food. And so then they came and they, they were friendly and that's what happened. And so they had to kill the wolf and he shows a picture of the shot wolf and my kids are just getting scarred in the front row. What is it? He's trying to traumatize these children. Yeah. So like the parents are like, stop, Carl. Like, what are you doing? Like, Carl, you got to stop. And like, the story just kept coming like oh and here's now you think you're safe in your tent but here's a story about a bear coming into the tent and like <laughs> we're just like we're sleeping in a tent tonight carl like what are you doing <laughs> we're, these kids are never gonna sleep carl but he just kept going and going and going and the stories kept going and the kids walk out of there with like these dinner plate eyes like i guess we'll go to bed now and we're just like oh we're done like these kids are not gonna sleep but then two days later my kids sees a bear and walks very calmly back to me. Was it the fact that I said a million times, if you ever see a bear, don't run, you have to walk? And was it the fact that I was chanting that to him? Or was it Carl who saved my son's life? It may have been Carl. It may be that that, that talk with all of the nightmares that will ensue for all the children that were in the audience was, in the end, the best thing. Also, the story about the cougar actively hunting children, right? That's the <laughs> thing about cougars is they like they go after children and they hunt them and they bite them on the neck and they pin them in the sand. And, like, he's like, here's where it happened. Here's a picture. And the, the, the kid will la da 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 Like, the kid lives, but... Oh, mm. my God. Yeah. Thanks, and, like, Carl. The <laughs> Carl. Oh, Parks Canada Carl. Hey, you know what? He was very good. Like, he was very entertaining. And he gave, like, several talks. And we attended them. And the kids loved it. Like, we had a we had a great time. But, man, Carl scared the living daylights out of those kids. I love how many times he said his name. Uh, it reminds me. My, my friend has an acrimonious relationship with her therapist. And she's always, like, whenever she does something wrong, like, she likes to do drinking and f- have fun. She's always, like, Sharon. She just refers to his ther- therapist, like, thanks, Sharon. Uh, and you right. rem- reminded me of that. Yeah, yeah. It's also, like, the Seinfeld Newman thing, right? It's Newman. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. Yeah. Um, you're talking about kids, and you're also talking about not wanting to fly earlier, or at least having guilt about it because of how awful mm-hmm. it is for the environment. Isn't having kids the single worst thing you can do for the environment, Dan? You people make that argument, and a lot of people are not wanting to have kids for that reason. But the, the my philosophical feeling is that some people make the world a better place, and some people make the world a worse place. And my plan is to have kids who make the world a better place. But you can't. You know well you can't control your kids. Like if your kid's a sociopath, there's only so much you can do. Right. No. You 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 hope. A lot of it is hope. And uh, listen, it's been very humbling. And, and what you've just said is a very wise, correct thing for somebody who doesn't have kids to say but you have like no control over them at all they are who they are and you are just like a helper as they make their way through the childhood and into adulthood like they've just they are hardwired but you can help them you try not to give them too many social problems that they have to tell sharon about a few years later (laughs) you try to like you try to set them up you try to give them a value set that that works that that makes sense or help them socialize help them navigate stresses and learn to deal with them in productive ways uh how not to get killed by a bear if you get too close you try to like give them these skills but ultimately like the hope is i don't know maybe my kids will be performing in sweeney todd on broadway someday and like making the world a better place that way like it doesn't really have to come down to how many cubic you know, what the volume of carbon is that they produce because uh, there there are other ways to measure the worth of, of uh, a life. And I think, you know, and listen, my kids bring a lot of joy to a lot of people. I'm, I'm happy they're here. 
Yeah, no, my argument was like every CEO of every oil company, of every awful company that pollutes and destroys and emits huge amount of carbon, uh, fossil fuels, all that kind of stuff, they're somebody's kid. But then Greta Thunberg is somebody's kid. Every good person who's changing the, the world is somebody's kid too. So my argument just falls apart. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, you, but I guess you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. There are lots of different ways to say it. You got to spend money to make money. And, you know, we're, what we can try to do is just influence the generation. And, you know, like there's my kids, but there's also all the kids that I talk to about science and all the kids that talk to about bats. And I've got a kid's book about bats that came out and I'm thinking about what the next book's message is going to be for kids. And I don't know. You just try to, I really do believe that kids make a big difference. And it's not, what's interesting is it's not just that they'll grow up to be people that make a difference, but kids can influence their family members in the present in a really powerful way. And there's a nice study um, looking at families in North Carolina or South Carolina. I can't remember which it is, but it's one of the Carolinas. And they had this program in schools where they talked about climate change. And then they surveyed the parents of the kids in those schools. And the uh, the kids that were given the information about climate change, it, it shifted the views of their parents like right then and it was most pronounced for republican dads with daughters interesting so interesting but the republican dads started to see climate change as a problem much more when they had a daughter who came home and told them it was a problem and so when we influence kids and when we reach kids as educators we're not just making an investment for the future we're actually fixing things right now which which is an, a nice sort of bonus it's kind of a novel thought i would never would have thought that but it's interesting findings yeah, and it's also like, I don't know, like the most underestimatable but powerful demographic is like the Greta Thunberg of of whatever, 10 years ago or eight years ago or whenever, when she first appeared and she was just this harmless looking little girl and what could she possibly do? And now she's absolutely a force, but there's just, there's a, there's a power in little girls and little boys too, but little kids of all genders, I guess, but um, there's a power there. And they're easy to underestimate. Maybe that's part of what their power comes from is that they sneak in past the defenses of that big, scary, sort of fixed in their ways dad who thinks they know everything, but then their daughter gets to him in a way that they weren't preparing themselves for. All right. I'm sold. I'm still not having kids because they're sticky, <laughs> but uh, I'm glad you have kids. Would you like your kids to be bitten by a swarm of murderous wasps? Probably not. Probably not. No. I mean, I'd prefer they were bitten than stung. I guess a lot of people say like, oh, look out, that scorpion's going to bite you. And you're like, they don't bite. They sting. Oh, shut up. Yeah, well, it matters. Shut up. It ma I thought a lot about venoms. I mean, some. in fact, there's a beetle they found last year that has a stinger on its penis, which is neat. Because usually it's the mo modified ovipositor of the female that's made into a stinger. But they found a, a, a this this uh, beetle. I think it's a beetle. I'm pretty sure it's a beetle. And it has a stinger on its penis. And they showed it stinging this frog. This poor frog eats it and is like, ow, 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 and then spits it out. My ex-wife left me for one of those beetles, actually. Fun story. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that is. That is. Um, no, you're like one of these people who's like, no, it's this word, not that word. You know, hmm. I, I get that way with computer science-y stuff and everyone finds it annoying about me. Yeah, it's like when people say bug to mean any kind of insect. I always, I'm like, this is not a kind of bug. A bee isn't a bug. Or if someone calls, no a botanist would ever even jump in here because they know fruit and vegetables bullshit. It doesn't even, right. there's no scientific basis. So a tomato is a vegetable because a vegetable is just what we call a group of things. But when someone's like, a tomato's a fruit, I'm like, go to hell. Yeah, right. Well, we, I was playing bar trivia when I was a postdoc in Rhode Island and we, it was all people from the biology department that were on our team and science was our worst subject by the way simpsons we crushed 
football we crushed but it was science questions like we overthought them we never knew the answer it was very embarrassing but they had one where they were like which vegetable has the most iron or maybe it was the second most iron i can't remember the question but the answer was mushrooms and the idea that mushrooms are a vegetable when a mushroom isn't even a plant the botanist on our group got so mad he starts just screaming in the bar he's like a mushroom is a fungus it is not even a plant he's just like yelling yelling and they're like they're just kept talking and ignoring but he was and he like he's kind of straggly guy too he has like beard and all this anyway it was it was a good scene we all we were there for the comedy and and it was comedic but sometimes i like lean into it right people complain about their computer being slow and i'm like have you tried downloading more ram you know like i will i will do the opposite i'll play the fool uh because it's right. extra funny to me because like i know right. i want i said the botanist should try that i think it would be a lot re- more relaxing right yeah that's fun i mean it's that old thing of like uh, do you ever do this where you're talking to a real like absolute idiot and you pretend there's a studio audience watching the conversation and so you just try to make it as funny for them as it could possibly be even though there is no audience yeah uh what you're admitting to is being a jerk by the way but yes i do it too yeah, I don't do it often, but I have done it before. I yeah. I so I look I don't look like an alpha nerd. I don't know. I I used to have a drinking and drug problem. I used to go to parties. I'm not a cool guy, but I would try to go to these things. Um I just don't like live and breathe computer sciencey stuff, and there are a certain type of alpha nerds that are like the Poindexter pocket protector, and I would right. work with those folks back when I was working in Silicon Valley. And when I would go to new companies or I'd show up at conferences, sometimes I'd be talking at the conferences. I w- until they knew that I was in with them, they'd assume I wasn't an engineer and they would treat me like an idiot. Uh, right. Most normal people wouldn't, but occasionally they would just take one look at me and like, you're not one of us. Um, yeah. But I was one of us and... I also specialized in one really geeky area that I knew a lot about, and that area is kind of a scary area to people. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but it's considered scary. Compiler theory, okay? Oh, yeah. Woo-hoo. Even when you say it, it just freaks me right out. And so I would like, yeah, I would talk, anyone who treated me like shit or like I didn't know what I was doing or like I didn't belong or like I'm not an engineer, I would definitely do that too. I would just start saying stupid stuff like like <laughs> uh, jiggle bits or, or how many megatrons are in the computer or, you know, can I get the HDMI and the Ethernet cable? You know, I'll just say the stupidest shit and I do what you're doing. I pretend there's a studio audience, but the audience is me making this person think I'm an idiot. And then later the hope is they'll find out that maybe I'm not. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there is that, that plan. Like I'm not, well, I think it doesn't look good for you. I mean, it's not nice to be, to do what we're describing, but it's also not nice to like all of a sudden get into a pissing contest with these people and try to prove that you know your stuff because it's not becoming like if they don't know and they want to underestimate you, let them. When I was hosting Daily Planet, I had somebody come into the studio and they had built by themselves this video game that you could like sit down in and ride and all this stuff. And it, it, um, and I think it had the word vector in the, in the title or something like that. And so I said, can you explain like the vector piece of it? Like, why do you call it vector? And he's like, well, you know what? Don't worry about it. Just try to hit the red things and the green things. I was like, okay, fine. So I try to hit the red things, and the green things, and I play the game and all this stuff. And then it, when we're finished, he's like, hey, I just looked you up. You have a PhD. I could tell you about the vector thing. And I'm like, well, no. No, I'm good. Like, it's, it, we're done. Like, yeah. I, you could have told me when I asked you on TV, like, don't tell me now. That's, that's no fun. And being underestimated, actually, when, when I was flying to, um, to Victoria, I was reading a book because I was reviewing a, a book about bats uh, for a journal, uh, like just like a popular book about bats, just writing like a little blurb about it for a journal. And so I was reading the book and this young woman was sitting next to me and she says, oh, you're reading about bats? And I said, yep. She said, bats are pretty cool. I'm like, 
Yeah. Yeah, they are. <laughs> That's like the bait for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, are you going to explain to me? <laughs> you could be going through like, I don't know, you're like about to die and you're just like taking your last walk in the hospital before you're about to die. And, and you would still take that bait if somebody said bats are pretty cool. Yeah. But anyway, I was like, are you a biologist? And she's like, yeah, yeah, no, I studied I studied all kinds of things. But yeah, bats are really neat. There's a lot of different species. They're, and I'm just like, Listen, this book talks about my research in like two different places, but I'm not so anyway, but I didn't I didn't want to get into a pissing contest with this person who just finished university. I didn't want to all of a sudden be like, Oh, don't tell me about bats, I know everything. So I just played it really like, Oh yeah, they are kinda cool. I'm really enjoying this book. And then I just like left it there. But I I never want to be the guy that's trying to prove that I how much I know. It's just it's not a good look. That proving or that humble brag or that trying to it, it lowers yourself to the level of someone who's like an arrogant nerd who's like lo- looking at you as a credentialist. Like, are you qualified to be as smart as me or not? It lowers you to their level when you show off. And then if you don't show off, uh, there's two outcomes. One, the interaction just ends and you didn't lower debase yourself. Two, they find out that you actually have the credentials, and then maybe there's a chance they'll look in the mirror and say oh i'm a dickhead so i think it's always best to not like brag about what you do yeah definitely but i think that when we make it into a game and we're sort of laughing at them with the studio audience maybe we're not being good people i think you make up a good point that maybe i'm being a dick so i gotta be a little less like that that's a sick pleasure all right uh what what, i don't forget what i even said about bees and wasps that make you made you upset Oh, yeah. So bees and wasps. So let's talk about it for a second. You said they bite people. They sting people. But um, so there's this paper about, um, you know how like a, a, a beehive has hexagons in it, the honeycombs? Sure. And the reason they make hexagons is because that's the optimal shape to use the least amount of material for the most number of cells. So they could make a grid that's like squares, but they would use more material. And they could make a tiling of uh, some other shape but or triangles or whatever, but the hexagons are the optimal shape because it uses the least material. Wow. And the reason that yeah, and the reason that that is true, or the re- one way to intuitively know that it's true is if you try to put circles into as densely packed an array as you possibly can, where you have like a row of circles and then a row above it of circles, but they're offset by half a diameter so that they fit into the slot. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can picture like a row of circles and then a row of circles on top of it, but it's offset so that they fit. There's still a little bit of unused space, wasted space. There's still a little unused space, but you've done as well as you can with circles. And if you do that, you make a tiling of that and you take any circle, you're going to have six circles around it. Exactly. It's going to be a symmetry with six sides. And basically a beehive is that shape, but with straight lines instead of curves that are, that are meeting. And so that's why a hexagon is the optimal shape. Isn't that kind of mind blowing? It is. I have a, 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 aphasia. No, no, I don't know. That's what Bruce Willis says. I have aphantasia. So I'm having trouble picturing the hexagons, uh-huh. uh, but it's a powerful analogy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you can't, when I say picture a bunch of circles, you can't do that, but uh, it's true. If you have a uh, hundred pennies in 10 minutes, <laughs> <laughs> come on i'm i'm in podcasting i'm not that rich dan yeah okay fair enough fair enough, fair enough. i don't want you don't want you to blow your whole earnings from this episode it's cool that like you know the beehives that were able to lay out their honeycomb more efficiently were using less energy and less cells and they would have been slightly more successful than the ones that did it as squares or circles or triangles or who knows and so it's crazy that over time you know not there's no conscious thinking of it, uh, but they ended up like following mathematical rules to be more efficient, uh, and they kind of trended towards it with their with their honeycomb. And I, I just find that fascinating. Totally. And so, and ninety eight percent of the time, it's a hexagon. But the researchers have found that if they look very carefully, they sometimes find a five sided 
shape or they find a seven-sided shape and they were like, oh, look, they make mistakes. Maybe that's interesting. Let's look at that more carefully. And so in this latest study, they try to figure out what's up with these five-sided and seven-sided shapes. And what they find is that they don't occur alone. They always occur together, a five-sided with a seven-sided. So what you have is a tiling of six-sided shapes. And then in one spot where there should be two six-sided shapes, which together as a unit would have 10 sides, there is a five-sided and seven-sided together, which together as a unit have 10 sides. So in other words, you can fit it into the puzzle slot where a six and a six would go together, but it's a five and a seven and it fits. And they always occur together because they'll fit into the matrix that way. And it turns out that the reason they do this is because those cells those shapes, those cells are for growing a baby bee or a baby wasp. And so as the hive grows, they have more and more of these cells and it's where new babies come out and they're making a whole bunch of workers. But late in the season, they stop making workers and they start making reproductive individuals. And sometimes for some species, the reproductive individual is larger. And so they need a bigger hole. And so they've been tiling with one size of hexagon for the whole thing. And then all of a sudden they need to switch to a larger size of hexagon. And so you can imagine if you were tiling your bathroom and you were using one side of hexagon tile, and then all of a sudden I brought in a shipment and they were larger hexagon tiles, you'd be like, this doesn't fit. I can't put these together. But if you have five-sided and seven-sided joiner pieces, you can fit the the small ones to the larger ones and so what you when they looked at these hives they found that the five and the seven together happen where there's a change in size in the hive between the small ones going to the big ones and so this is actually like an on-purpose magical key piece that bees and wasps use so they can keep making hexagons even though they've changed size my mind is blown by this, but I'm not even sure why it's blown. It's just that we figured it out or that bees are just instinctively making a grid that can accommodate slightly larger individuals later on. Like what? what is... Yeah, so so exactly. So they looked across nine different species and they found that the species where the size of the individuals never changes, they don't make the fives or the sevens. But where they have a species where the size all of a sudden needs to change later in the season, they use the five and the seven as a solution to the problem. And it's a solution to the mathematical problem. And when mathematicians do that problem, they find that it's actually the optimal solution to that mathematical, pro mathematical problem. And it, as you said, evolution has found this thing. The bees and the wasps just do what they're told by their DNA, but evolution has solved this mathematical problem in the optimal way. And bees and wasps have evolved this independently of one another because their evolution of this behavior has happened independently in those two groups. And so it's just, it's really cool when bees and wasps with their little brains, the size of a sesame seed are doing something so amazing. It's cool that they evolved independently to this. It's it's almost mm -hmm. like, I always find it fascinating that like, I believe you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, cause I'm an idiot, but octopuses have brain like things, but they have no brain wielding ancestors with us in common. So they've mm -hmm. evolved brains completely independently in the evolutionary tree. Uh, whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know, but let's assume it's right or am I right, do you know? I think it's the eye that, that is independent, independent in the, the so th I think the nerve, I don't know if the nervous system of an octopus, I think that the nervous systems do have a common ancestor between us and octopus, but their eyeball okay. is independently evolved. And it's exactly what you're talking about. And one way that, that the actually, in some ways, the octopus's eyeball is better because we have the optic nerve coming out right in the middle of the eyeball. And so we have this blind spot and they don't have that. So, uh, but yeah, what you're saying is true. It's just not brain, it's eyeball. So this is why you're a great educator. You know, back in your, your head, you're thinking, okay, my students an idiot but i'm gonna i'm gonna yes and them so that they feel like they got something right no but you did you got the baby the more important piece <laughs> is that they independently evolve something that converges on what we have that's the point it doesn't matter the the details are pedantic this 
is also occurs in knowledge sometimes. Like Newton and Leibniz independently came up yes. with calculus at the same time in different corners of the earth. Well, different quarters of Western civilization. And, yep. you know, it's crazy to me that the wasps and the bees, it makes you really worry. Like, you know, is knowledge, is, evolu- is, there, is there some timeline going on where like yeah. things are going to happen around a certain time? Are certain things inevitable? That's the interesting question. The final ending of that question, Dan? Are we going to destroy ourselves? Is that inevitable? Does life destroy ourselves? To itself, excuse me. Yeah, wait, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I mean, I, I can't think of an example of a civilization that's gotten to where we are, where we have good data on what happened to them in the end, right? I mean, maybe on other planets it happens over and over that civilizations rear up and they're like, oh, we got this. And then they're like, oh, well, let's make artificial intelligence. And then they die. <laughs> I wonder if life's goal is to convert a planet to a disgusting wasteland when it's about, you know, is it exists in the habitable zone as a, in a star and it has the right ingredients for life like life exists to convert the planet to the next stage which is desolate destroyed and uh you know polluted so this has happened before so there's the great oxygenation event which is what happened when photosynthesis evolved so the earth didn't used to have oxygen oxygen is a brutal chemical that rips electrons off of things and it's it's really really toxic and poisonous and terrible to everything that lived on earth And there was no oxygen to speak of, so everybody was fine. But then all of a sudden, these organisms evolved that could take sunlight and make it into energy, and they gave off oxygen as a waste product. And so they were basically farting oxygen, and they made so much of it that 20% of the atmosphere became oxygen, and everything died. Like everything, but not quite everything. A few things that could deal with oxygen survived, and those became the ancestors of everything that we have today. And we think of oxygen now as this great like, oh, isn't the oxygen pure? The earth is taking care of us, but it's just the farts of these original and the continuing photosynthetic things. So yeah, we make garbage, we make nuclear waste, and we like all these things that are just terrible for us now, plastics, all these things that kill all the organisms on earth now, but we'll drop them all off, we'll wipe ourselves out, and then life will continue and it'll build on what's available. So life will find a way a la Jurassic Park, but um, yeah, we do... We are making a mess of things. We're not the first to do that. I hope it's the cucarachas, the cockroaches that rise. Yeah, I really do. They deserve it. They're they're good people. Yeah, they've they've gotten the short end of the stick for a long time. And I do like I do respect cockroaches. They're pretty amazing for a lot of reasons. There I saw a huge one the other day outside my building. But it was messed up. I think it had been poisoned. It was ready to die. It was just kind of, you know, because they usually scurry. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at its body and it's disgusting. I know it's not hairy legs, but the hairy protrusions that come out of the legs. I was looking at its body and its shell and I'm like, this thing is disgusting. And then I looked at its head with its little antenna. And I'm thinking, it's kind of cute actually. You know, they're, they're, it's weird. They're cute and horrifying at the same time. Yeah, I think the way they scurry is what works against them. Like they're fine and then they move really fast. You're like, no, I like it when they hold still. Like uh, like if you get a zoomed in video of one and you know it's not going to touch you, it's still a little hard to look at, but it's, it's a little bit better. But they have all these biomechanical tricks. Like you can squish them and they bounce right back and they, you know, they can like fall down and there are even experiments where people built little tiny rockets and put them on the backs of the cockroaches so while the cockroach was running along all of a sudden the the rocket fired and sent it flying out to the side and they looked at how fast they recovered and they're incredibly stable runners they have like what they call preflexes where they can adjust for that before it even happens like there's lots about cockroaches that makes them the best creatures but we just nobody respects them no one respects them because they scuttle that's the word dan they scuttle they scuttle along you said normally they scurry 
Yeah, maybe I used the word. Maybe maybe it was me. Who who are these scientists who are strapping jetpacks onto cockroaches? I want to meet them. Yeah, they're in Berkeley. They're but they and that's old work now. But they they've built since built all these robots. I mean, the thing about a, a cockroach when it's running is that it's on a tripod all the time. So the two legs. So it's got six legs: three on one side, three on the other side. When it takes a step. It's the middle leg on the left and the front and back leg on the right that move, that lift up together, move forward together, and then go down together. So it puts down a tripod and it's totally stable. And then it picks up the other tripod and moves forward and, and it's always on a tripod. So it is stable all the time. And what they showed with this rocket is that when it's running, it doesn't have to respond to the forces that push it to the side. It just automatically has a feedback loop in the way the limbs move that converts it, that, that keeps it on course. And so whereas you and I would have to like stumble and recover and push back, a cockroach doesn't have to do that. And so if you're building a robot for use in say a battle zone, go with six legs and run like a tripod. Dan, thank you for your time. See ya. Bye. Bye. 